We are going to be talking about building a competitive Europe and asking what can the EU-Swedish presidency do. I'm delighted to see so many of you here today to join us and, of course, a very warm welcome to all of those of you joining online. My name is Jennifer Baker. I am a tech journalist and reporter based here in Brussels. And my job today is really to guide you through the agenda, introduce you to our great panellists and hopefully get as many questions to them in the time allowed. Now, we all know the Swedish presidency kicked off at the start of this year, uh, right at a very pivotal moment. I think we are now almost halfway through. So we're going to be asking about what more can be done to promote economic growth. Uh, it's obviously one of the top priorities for the EU. Uh, we've seen crisis after crisis in recent years. We've seen COVID. We've had war in Ukraine or ongoing war in Ukraine. But aside from that, there seem to be some other underlying problems and why Europe is lagging behind. We saw on the 1st of February that Brussels presented its Green Deal industrial plan to boost Europe's clean industries. I'm sure many of you here are familiar with the whole clean tech world. Um, but we also see that this is in relation to things happening across the pond in the US with the Inflation Reduction Act and the subsidies being put in place there. We also see China's efforts to plough ahead with, with solar energy and so forth. So there's a lot of geopolitical questions as well that come under this economic umbrella that we have to consider. So I won't get as many questions from everyone in the audience tonight. You will see that we have a QR code on the screen. We are going to use Slido. If you want to use your phones or your tablets at home, you can go to slido.com on your browser and enter competitive EU or simply scan the code that you see there on your screen. There's no need to download anything. With that, I think we're ready to hand over to uh, welcome us all here and set the scene and indeed tell us why Microsoft is so keen to support us in this debate today. Elena Green, who is the General Manager and Associate General Counsel of Microsoft. Thank you. Thank you and good afternoon everyone. It's my pleasure to welcome you here in person and online to the Euractive Presidency debate on how to build a competitive Europe and how the Swedish Presidency for the Council of the European Union will, is supporting that. I am particularly delighted to welcome uh, Jessica Rusval, Swedish Minister for EU Affairs, who will join us to share with us the, the Swedish Presidency's experience to date and perspective on maintaining European competitiveness. The EU-Swedish presidency is happening at a crucial time in the context of the Ukraine war, the energy crisis, and rising inflation, all aspects that challenge the European competitiveness, which the presidency has put at the core of its priorities. The presidency also happens to be during the 30th anniversary of the launch of the European single market, which continues to be a fundamental element to strengthening EU competitiveness in the long term. We, as Microsoft, support the presidency's vision that only through competitive businesses can we create sustainable growth, accelerate our transition in green and, and digital, and increase economic resilience. Measures at the EU level need to be based on fundamental values such as openness, free movement of Free free freedom of movement, effective competition, and regulatory frameworks that promote growth and innovation. And I personally hear this from the many European customers that I, and businesses that I work with every day in, in my job. Because in my role, I support uh, the Microsoft presence in business in a region we call Western Europe, 
which is made up of 12 countries, 10 of which are EU member states, including Sweden. Um, and in my daily work, I help the company in its commitments to sustainable transformation and to local investment. For example, in 2021, we launched our sustainable data center in Sweden with presence in Gävle, Sandviken, and Staffanstorp. I apologize to the Swedish in the room for my pronunciations. Uh, investing locally to help create long-term opportunities across both commercial and public sector. We believe that these types of tech innovation are an important enabler for Europe in order for it to reach its sustainability targets. And with that, I'd stop here and let me welcome Swedish Minister for UU Affairs, Jessica Roosevelt, for her keynote remarks. And I wish you all an inspiring discussion today. Thank you. Well, Jessica, your introduction has already been done. Uh, Minister, we're very pleased to have you joining us. So I will hand over the floor to you for your keynote speech. Thank you, Jennifer, and thank you, Elena, for organizing this timely discussion. European competitiveness is very close to my heart, and it is, as Elena said, a core to the Swedish EU presidency. So therefore, I try to, uh, my, my plan is to say some words on how we, uh, why this is so important and how we are working uh, to make a difference on these matters. My government is overriding vision is greener, freer and safer Europe. That is why what we are striving for towards in response on to the fact that we are in the middle of a major transition. First, we are witnessing the return of a great power politics where confrontation and rivalry is becoming common practice in international relations. On top of that, we are facing economic challenges with stagnation growth figures, inflation levels not to, not to have been seen for decades, and new financial worries. At the same time, it is urgent that we are take resolute actions to combat climate change. Because of this, I think that we all sense the need for credible policy responses. Of course, all of these challenges are interlinked, but let me focus on those that are clearly in an economic uh, domain. In recent years, economic policies in the EU has been driven by a sense of urgency in crisis management. The latest example of maybe is the, the response to the US Inflation Reduction Act, IRA. The IRA caused uh, great concern amongst a lot of EU member states and institutions. But I would say that it also highlighted the need to for EU to take our, long, our own long-term competitiveness more seriously. I would also say that the Commission approach the IRA issue is in a balanced way. First, they, by welcoming the, the, the direct, its direction. After all, it was not long ago that the US was withdrawing from the global climate goals, and the IRA, with its flaws, must be seen in a step in the right direction. Secondly, the Commission has worked with US friends, with our US friends, so to sort out differences and mitigate any measures that would that would discriminate against European companies. In parallel, the Commission had to put a lot of effort into formulating an EU policy response. 
not an easy task when pressuring down inflation remains a key priority. And as we know, tighter fiscal policy is necessary mean to that end. The Commission managed to formulate the Green Industrial Plan that you mentioned also, Jennifer, which addressed some immediate competitive challenges that our, our businesses are facing. With the massive Fit for, fit for, fit for 55 uh, package, the EU also sent a signal to investors and businesses that we are stepping up to seize the net zero opportunity. But designing policies to deal with the current situation cannot only be looking around the next corner. We must also consider that the EU has been lagging behind in peers for quite some time, long before the IRA and, in fact, before COVID, the energy crisis and the Russian assault on Ukraine. Over the last four decades, our growth rates have been sluggish compared to the US and many other OECD countries. Our productivity is lower than other important players, maybe and maybe even more worrying, we continue to spend less on R&D. This is fundamental problem for our prosperity and our, our ability to generate the resources needed to tackle the big challenges today and tomorrow. Our long-term competitiveness won't be helped by short-term public interventions and aid packages. Instead, we need to adjust some basic policies and the general directions we, that we are moving in. That is why the Swedish presidency emphasized long-term competitiveness, and that is why it must be at the top level of the political agenda in today's world. If we want the EU to be to set standards, we must have the economic and technical technological base to back our bid. We are quite happy that we, with the robust way in which the Commission has picked up the competitiveness priority of our presidency. Already in December, Sweden managed to include an assignment to the Commission in the conclusions from the European Council to present a strategy boost competitiveness. This strategy, which was presented in March, puts R&D, skills, access to private capital and better regulation at its, at its core. At the core. Importantly, their strategic work method includes the use of KPIs for, uh, for efficient implementation and follow-up. Supported by the single market at 30 communication, it provided an excellent basis for the leaders when they discussed long-term competitiveness at the Spring European Council. At the summit, the leaders made it clear that they share the views that we need to work in this way and that these policies areas are crucial. This recognition at the highest political level is important, and we got a powerful message to guide policymaking. So this makes this marks the start of a long-term process to be to be influential, uh, influential, and a competitiveness agenda requires dedicated work with monitoring and regular follow-ups over many years ahead. Leaders have agreed to come come back uh, to to this in June. And to prepare for this, the Swedish presidency is planning discussions in key councils, formations and associated events. A particular important step will be at the competitive, uh, Competitiveness Council in May, when the Commission should flesh out the strategic work methods described in its communication. Many other exchanges and exercises are foreseen. Amongst them, uh, items, uh, 
one um, one items on the finance minister's agenda when they meet in Stockholm, uh, starting tonight and tomorrow. You we will, for example, find the discussion on how financial markets can help finance companies growth and expansion. And next week, high level particip participation from the Commission, member states, and businesses will gather for the single market forum. All these discussions in combination with targeted negotiations on key legislations acts are on the table and that will feed into the presidency report to the European Council in June. And this is the follow-up that was asked for at the March meeting. When talking about competitiveness, especially in this forum, it would be strange to not say anything about on the key relationship in this respect, the transatlantic relationship. The US and the EU are each other's most important trading partners. The trade between us uh, is estimated to amount to about a trillion euros in 2021. Clearly, transatlantic economic cooperation is of vital importance. These days, it is especially evident when it comes to setting standards for emerging, emerging technologies. Therefore, the Trade and Technology Council, the TTC, is such a well, it's such a valuable format. And Sweden is very happy to host the fourth TTC meeting in the end of May. It will take place in Luleå in the north of Sweden with a green and digital focus. You may think like a carbon neutral steel and a digital agenda. But to conclude, Europe needs to step up its game when it comes to competitiveness and productivity. The Commission's new long-term competitiveness strategy is welcome. It's a welcome initiative uh, on this regard. The European Council's meeting in March marks the start of it making, it making it happen in the real world. It will take a dedicated work over many years, and we will use the remaining time of the Swedish presidency to help and set out for this plan to plan this. All this work in progress, insights and, contrib insights and contributions from this, the, the, the panelists who are coming to talk later on, uh, and other stakeholders will be valuable added to this. But that is my uh, first remarks, and I will, I'm very happy to be here, and thank you. I wish you a good discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, a round of applause, I think, for the Minister for setting the tone. And I think we will, of course, touch on many of the points that have been raised in that speech. Um, there is a slight change to our build lineup tonight. Unfortunately, uh, MEP Jorgen Warborn from the intercommittee, who was due to join us, has fallen ill. However, he does wish us all the best and sent us a, a brief video message. Combined market with the European Union and Mercosur. 450 million people in the European Union and 260 million on the Mercosur side would be the biggest market together, a bilateral big, big market. We would reduce tariffs by 91%. So it will be less costly to doing business with each other. And that would be fantastic for consumers, for reducing inflation, and for creating a lot of business opportunities for European SMEs and, and the industry in Europe. So it's economy of scale, it's market opportunities, and it's also a way of sourcing goods uh, for European businesses from South America. Uh, this is very, very important for European competitiveness, I would say.
I also should say that I have also been emailed his speaking points, so I'll be hopefully able to <laughs> weave some of those into our discussion in the form of questions. But let me introduce our panellists joining us this evening. We have Roman Arjona, Head of the Chief Economist Unit in DG Grow in the European Commission. Frederick Eriksson is Director of ESIP. Charlotte Andersdotter is the International Director and Head of the EU Office in Brussels of the Confederation of Swedish Enterprise and joining remotely but here in spirit, Andrew Lloyd, Global Head of Government and Policy at Ericsson. So thank you all very much for joining us. Um, we'll do a brief round allowing all of you to set out your stall and maybe take the temperature of, of what your, uh, your thoughts are. Roman, how do you see the role of the EU in advancing the competitiveness that we all want so much? Um, particularly for European companies in global markets. We see that the political and economic situation is changing rapidly. So how do you ensure that those EU companies are being integrated, have access to global markets, whilst being competitive within them? Thank you very much, uh, Jennifer. I think that in order to answer that question, um, I have to set a little bit the, the tone of the, of the context, uh, the background you know, that we are living in. And it was already mentioned by you, by the, uh, by the minister, but I would call it the three Cs. Uh, so kind of uh, changes, uh, challenges, and complexities of the current world. The changes is are basically due to the fact that for a long time in the EU we have been witnessing a number of social, environmental, economic uh, challenges that were very complex in scale and nature, and we thought that we had them all kind of uh, fixed. Uh, that is climate change, uh, digitalization, massive digitalization of industry as well, um, aging of the population, and suddenly we have all these disruptions that we're witnessing. We have a number of black swans, a number of grey rhinos as well, or elephants in the room that nobody you know, was paying too much attention to. And suddenly you know, we get into this motion in which we see that part of these continuous disruptions are actually staying with us in the for, for quite some time. So this is what Alex Stubb, who, is, uh, who was former Prime Minister of Finland and now head of the Transnational School of Governance in Florence, calls the age of disruption. And I think, you know, to those kind of changes, we have to add the dimension of challenges. And there is a number of challenges that those changes are creating for industry. Uh, one of them, for instance, is deindustrialization. We're witnessing a process of like a, a gradual shift downwards in manufacturing in EU and other advanced um, states. And that is, of course, a reason of, of concern and something that we have to watch. Also, shoring practices, localization decisions of firms seem to have shifted uh, pretty much. Now, firms are really, you know, locating here or there depending on other factors. Supply chain disruptions, logistics, access to skills, uh, where the knowledge is laying, and other types of factors which we need to factor in when we are doing policies. And then, of course, there is skills. And skills, there is a big discussion about upskilling and reskilling. But there is also a lot of change that is going to be brought about by the generative pre-trained transformer technology sort of chat GPT style. So what kind of impact are those technologies going to have on competitiveness? That's also an important question. And then let me refer to complexities. Because we live in a world in which, of course, open trade is essential, uh, and as well as um, interlinkages and participation in international global value chains. But we also need to be aware that um, there is an agenda on open strategic autonomy and there is a number of strategic dependencies that um, the EU is facing vis-a-vis -vis third partner countries and that we need to be kind of uh, well-equipped in order to address those. For example, we're witnessing a shift in dependencies on fossil fuels from the East, so to say, to critical raw materials from Asia. 
and how are we going to address this, what type of competitiveness opportunities shall we put in motion. So if I may just um, kind of say uh, a few more words on this. I think the solution to these three C's is what I would say is four R's. You know what I mean? Now I just uh, <laughs> kind of... So the first one is resources. I mean, the need to, to be able to access, uh, to facilitate access to finance, to make it uh, rapid and easy for firms, to um, be able to move into the deep and patient capital, and to, you know, kind of... Um, we know that Europe is having seven times uh, less unicorns than the US, is having seven times less venture capital power than the US, and the venture capital funds in the EU are also more shallow. So we need to address these first our resources. The second one is reskilling, upskilling. So I already talked about that. I think that's really the big elephant in the room that we should keep an eye on. And then the third would be regulation. We need a regulatory um, kind of environment which is really a pro-competitiveness and uh, which is, you know, like um, simplified and it has all the elements that we need not only to address the short-term challenges that the minister was talking about, but also this kind of longer-term agenda. And the final R is relations. And here, you know, when we deal with open strategic autonomy, we need to make sure that uh, we have, for example, well, the right partnerships with like-minded partners that may allow us to replace, to substitute some of those dependencies that we have vis-a-vis -vis third partner countries and others. So I think for me these four R's would be a little bit, you know, what we should keep an eye on. Well, thank you very much. Um, I, I, I like your, uh, your comment of Alex Stupp calls it uh, the age of disruption, but uh, I know others might just say it's a perma-crisis. Yeah, um, as well. So, we obviously need to come up with some proper policy solutions and recommendations. Frederick, your ESIP recent study was the economic dividend of competitiveness, making policy recommendations. What are the top two or three that you would pick out of that? So, uh, I mean, in the first place, um, I mean, building on also what uh, uh, Ramon just said and also what we heard from the minister, um, um, I mean, we need to think about it long term. There is no quick fix to get competitiveness to, to <coughs> work better. If we, if we really want to challenge the the big things, it's all about long-term developments. Um, you know, we can have um, a growth rate in Europe which is lower than in America or the rest of the developed world for one or two years. It's not going to show that much in terms of prosperity differences. But if you, if it, if you draw that out for 20 years, for 30 years, you're going to see that the economic prosperity gap is becoming substantial and it's going to affect so much in the European economy. And of course, this is the development we've had. If you, if you look at Europe's and especially Western Europe's position towards America on productivity growth, on technology growth, on R&D investment, on capital expenditures, on revenue growth at firm levels. We're underperforming on all these categories, and the differences are getting bigger and bigger. If you put 100 euros into the average Western European stock market 20 years ago, and you compare if you've done the same on sort of the, the American stock market, you would have had three times as much money back if you'd done it in America in, compared to if you've done it in, in Europe. So the long-term solutions are, firstly, um, I mean, this is what I usually say, which is, if you talk to governments around Europe, indeed, if you talk to the European Commission here, whatever figure you plan to spend on R&D, and especially scientific R&D university in 2030, double it. That's what we need to do. And if we talk about 2040, well, we need to be even more bolder in terms of what type of resources that are going to be made available for the university sector and for the science sector. And of course, that also includes corporate R&D. 
the the sort of this the scale of the gap that we have now that we now face ourselves in in Europe in terms of what we spend on long-term R&D development or long-term innovation is it's is becoming so acute that we need to do something very very big. So that's the first thing. The other thing I would say is openness towards the rest of the world. The, the commission came out with uh, an analysis uh, recently which, which said that 85% of world growth now is generated outside Europe. That figure is just going to go down and down and down as the rest of the world grows richer and as Europe's share of the global market goes down. But that doesn't just mean that we are sort of have a relative decline in new growth. It also means that more education spending, more human capital spending, more R&D spending, more innovation spending, more patents, more of everything yep. is going to come outside of Europe. And that basically means if we in Europe want to access the best technologies, the best talent, we need to be open to the rest of the world. So finding better ways to ensure that openness, I think, would be the other key things in order to ensure that we can raise our competitiveness in Europe. I probably will come back to you to talk a bit more about R&D, and you mentioned patents, and today we saw just the final piece of the jigsaw on the unified patent being announced. But I do wonder, we've been talking about this for I don't know how many years, why it has taken so long um, at a cost to businesses. And Charlotte, I want to give you to give you the Swedish perspective, and, and businesses, companies from Sweden, traditionally have relied on exports. So you must have a perspective on this open trade. What do you think is the key challenge in getting it right? Well, I will probably win the Nobel Prize if I could answer that <laughs> easily. But I would like to take just step a step back um, because the the theme here is what can the EU Swedish presidency do? I think we so far have already done one very important thing: we put competitiveness back on the agenda again. So from the Confederations mm. side, we have missed a competitiveness strategy, something that someone was talking about for many years at European level. We were not talking about that. We did not talk about growth. That was, I shouldn't say a, a bad word, but it was difficult to see, have the two thoughts in, in the head at the same time, that you can work on sustainability and growth at the same time. So firstly, uh, I want to really thank the Swedish presidency to have put that on, on the agenda uh, again. From the Confederation, um, coming back to, to the trade part, but I just wanted to outline what, what we have done to emphasize the need from that our companies, that our members are urging for, is actually to have a more a clarity and a long-term strategy. What we have seen the last years, yeah, Alexander Stubb said that we're in a decade of, of disruption. The crisis we've seen the last three years already started ahead uh, back then. Um, so, and we will see others. So we cannot just solve where we are with these short-term um, short-term um, measures. So what we did ahead of the Swedish presidency, we actually came together with our uh, members and we said, what would we propose for the Swedish presidency to focus on? The word competitiveness was, of course, the main thing. And then we defined five priorities. I will say they are not rocket science that we believe are fundamental to being long, big, uh, build long-term competitiveness. That's to continue to work on the green transition because we needed our, our uh, environment uh, urge for that, but also for our businesses to be competitive 
to build new uh, business, uh, business cases, business models, things that we can export actually to do trade about. Otherwise, what would we need something to continue to trade on? Um, the digital transition, we are, I don't know how many years we have talked about this, but we're still not there. You know it better than I do. Uh, <clears throat> the internal market, it was mentioned by, by the minister. We say that the cr crown jewel of the EU um, collaboration is actually our internal market. We need to continue to deepen the internal market and take the, uh, the uh, hurdles we have away. And that goes from everything just on, on, on exporting between the countries in, in Europe, but also from on the importance, what you just mentioned, Frederick, on research, on, on skills, that we can actually take advantage of what we have at the internal market, but importantly, not to close ourselves in. Um, I have a little bit of problems with the strategic autonomy that I think that everyone knows, knowing a Swede, even if you put the word open there, it's a word. We also need to show what we mean with that. So our fourth uh, priority is actually open and free trade. For us, that is fundamental. We are a small export uh, dependent country, but also for what was just mentioned, the trade is open trade, open collaboration is more than the, the, the export part. We need smart people to collaborate with. We could never solve the global problems if we don't collaborate. And the fifth one, which I am very happy to see again on the agenda, and this is something that me and Roman we have in common from long time back, research and innovation, finally we're talking about again that we need to heavily invest in research and innovation. We are not at all, what is it, 2%? How many years have we been talking about the goal of 3%? And we are far from there. So we, this, we, if we should be serious on competitiveness, we need actually to really see progress on that. Andrew, um, you have the, the unenviable task of speaking last in this opening round. Um, and so I'm sure you, you will echo many of the, the things we've already heard. But I mean, Ericsson has been operating globally successfully for many years now. I mean. Does EU policy, do EU uh, policies or regulations help or hinder? Or, or what, what's your view there? Well, um, they can do both. Um, and maybe if I pick up on this question of innovation, because you know the digital economy is at the heart uh, of innovation and it's the heart of competitiveness. Uh, and it really it offers real opportunities, if you get the policies right, to boost competitivity to address structural problems, to deliver green growth. And what we used to view as, as futuristic, if you like, e-health, connected vehicles, traffic systems, robotics, cloud-based infrastructure, that's, that's already arrived. So nowadays, European industries and global industries are going through the next phase of evolution because connectivity, 5G, and as 5G develops, is going to take the connectivity away from, if you like, the smartphone uh, and across to companies. Um, but if we look back at the past decade at 4G, you know, 4G created the app economy and digitized the consumer, and it drove unprecedented growth. Previous speakers have spoken about unicorns, about investment in capital markets outside of Europe. But Europe was late to deploy 4G. So many of the jobs 
and the value of the app economy were created elsewhere by North American or Chinese companies. Apps came to Europe, but jobs were created elsewhere. And now, as you see, some of the biggest companies in the world are outside of Europe. Europe actually has very few globally competitive tech companies. Ericsson's one of them. There are very few. And if Europe lags in this connected economy, consumers and businesses will still get the apps, but they won't get the jobs, the growth or the innovation. So I think the, the real competitivity message on policy is close the gap. Don't delay the digital infrastructure. It's of concern not just to the consumer with the smartphone, but to industry uh, at large. Uh, and if we are behind our global competitors, there's a sort of compounding effect. You know, the, the longer we're behind, the quicker they are for the innovation and to spend on the research and development. So we need to keep pace with the front runner economies and governments can help in that. But you need scalable, you need sustainable innovation. So going back to the policies on research and development and innovation, you need a structural policy which allows for scale amongst the telecoms deliverators, what we call the, the operators. But you need to ensure sufficient spectrum so that that wireless rolls out and that needs to be consistent. And you need a connectivity first industrial policy. I think the final point I'd make, and just to pick up on where the minister began, uh, this remaining focused on the international alliances, promoting standards and norms, global standards and norms, is what allows for companies to have global scale access and to drive global innovation. So that's a very important point for us too. Uh, so I think industry, European industry is ready and willing to make this happen, but we need, we need the regulatory framework um, to get that digital decade, to get those goals achieved. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. I think you're pointing to something that I, I've heard echoed before in, in other forums as well, um, from Digital Europe and others, that the single market isn't always very conducive to scale up. I mean, we do still see barriers. We, we'd like to think we're one block, but in, as, in essence, there still are a lot of barriers there, um, which prevents this scale up to compete on the global stage. Roman, I mean, where do you think the priority should lie? I mean, we talked, we've, we've taken a little bit of a scattergun approach in this first round. You know, we've talked about skills, we've talked about sustainability, we've talked about autonomy. We, something has to be a priority. Yes, well, on that one, I would say, um, I would bring it back a little bit to the, to the kind of points that the, that the panelists were making on competitiveness before, because... Indeed, you know, I mean, I think a big um, kind of um, a big thing that happened during the Swedish presidency has been indeed, you know, I mean, that industrial competitiveness, as the minister said and Charlotte said, you know, I mean, has come uh, pretty much to the forefront. And there are two axes actually in your priorities which are pretty much touching upon competitiveness: one on competitiveness itself, and the other one on the green and digital transitions with a competitiveness angle. And what we try to do uh, when we put forward the communication on, on the long-term competitiveness approach was to try to tackle four issues. Basically, the first one is, is productivity growth, so that uh, we ensure that there is um, productivity growth in a world in which, uh, in which by the very same na changing nature of innovation, and innovation, as uh, we all see, it has changed a lot over the past uh, decade, 
So it's not any longer the same type of innovation that it was before. We have now um, a degree of complexity in innovations with many emerging at the crossroads of different technologies, many emerging as well, you know, with uh, pretty much of a thrust uh, induced by uh, science, by frontier science. And then we have um, this kind of creates as well in one way or another, you know, I mean, a, a concentration of innovation, you know, I mean, at the, at the, uh, you know, in a, in, in a certain number of firms, you know, which are at the top of the of the kind of um, productivity gains scale. So the question is how to, how can then we diffuse this innovation that is happening at the top, you know, I mean, so that it uh, through the single market and uh, using the single market as a kind of anchor as well, you know, I mean, it spreads uh, naturally, you know, I mean, through uh, the industrial tissue. So for me, the issue of uh, indeed, you know, I mean, of innovation is a critical one to uh, removing barriers to innovation diffusion in order to be able to boost productivity growth. Other aspects are sustainability, of course, resilience. So here again, the single market. I think uh, Charlotte was talking uh, very well about the removal of barriers. You know, I mean, that's something that, of course, is keeping us busy, and there is uh, still a lot that needs to be done, particularly on the services uh, kind of front. But there is also an opportunity here to transform as well the single market into a generator of uh, resilience. And I think that there we have to be aware that, um, that there are many things happening um, out there. For instance, we have a lot of dependencies, strategic dependencies vis-a-vis third partner countries. We recently did a study which was uh, published one week ago in which we were um, kind of putting a number of filters to very disaggregated data, uh, reading the whole panoply or spectrum of products in which the EU is trading with third partner countries. And we were able to detect 204 dependencies which were really coming up very you know, prominently out of this uh, analysis. And many of those, for example, are on raw materials, which are essential for electric vehicles and for other types of technologies that are related to the green transition. Solar panels, you know, I mean, are, are an aspect, for example, that we also um, ha set a focus on when we were analyzing supply chain disruptions. Also because uh, China seems to be quite prevalent in all the segments of the value chain, you know, I mean, of uh, technologies such as uh, uh, solar panels as well, you know, where dependencies were also uh, pretty prevalent. So I think that there is, uh, there is a number of uh, kind of upgrades that we can do there, you know, in our um, single market as well, you know, I mean, not only to use it as a removal, uh, not only to remove barriers to ensure its maximum power, but also to be able to drive it, you know, I mean, to become, you know, this kind of generator of resilience that we would uh, want it to be. Now, on the issue of innovation, and uh, I completely agree, I think access and use and diffusion of knowledge is essential if we want to make a step forward. And I also very much uh, agree with Frederick that um, we, need to, uh, we need to boost uh, our efforts, you know, I mean, in R&D, not only in terms of investments, but also in terms of development of uh, skills, connection between industry and science, and many other dimensions that are happening out there. And my last point is on issues which are relating to the circular economy as well. Because I was talking before about uh, dependencies on raw materials, shortages on some of those, but many times the issue is also linked to the fact that we are not particularly good in Europe in the recycling, in the uh, circularity of some of, for instance, rare earths, uh, which are essential in them to make permanent uh, magnets and other types of um, uh, intermediate goods that we need again, you know, for the green transition. So I think that there we need an effort, and there was a critical raw materials act, you know, I mean, that was put forward very recently, 
alongside the Net Zero Industry Act. I think it is equally important as well to bring this to the forefront because there there is a strategy as to you know which touches upon all the segments of critical raw materials from extraction to refinement to commercialization etc where there is a number of obstacles in relation to green mining and others but I think we should look into those if we really want to build uh, some capacities as well in Europe and be able to uh, to be up to speed with the green developments. Well I'd like to build on that uh, Frederick I mean to what degree do we allow either researchers in R&D or companies uh, in operating independently to make their own choices about supply chain and sourcing when we talk about, say, things like critical raw materials, rare earths? Um, how interventionist should a state be or, or should policies be? Or do we say, we trust you, <laughs> make your own choices? So, I mean, I mean there is one dimension of it which is um, sort of confronted with a different geopolitical development that Europe, like everyone else, needs to get a better understanding of um, where potential risks are and need to try to figure out in what ways they can deal with those risks if we are exposed to different supply risks. Um, raw materials access has been a bugbear for decades. It's not a new issue. <laughs> Uh, rare earths, I mean, I can't remember when we started to talk about rare earths, but I was going to say it's before I was born, but, uh, <laughs> you know, pretty close to it. Um, um, so, I mean, it's, I mean, very few of these issues are, are, are new, but of course they've been, they've been forced upon the agenda with greater power because of Russia's assault on Ukraine and because we don't know the extent to which the, the character of the Chinese government is going to lead us into confrontations in the future that may present risks. Uh, the goods that, that, sort of the 204 goods, I don't think there's going to be sort of a one particular strategy for all of them. I think there's going to be sort of a host of different policies that are needed in order to find diversification. Uh, to make sure that we are using, as Jürgen Warborn mentioned in, in his uh, intervention or the video clip that we got from him, uh, which is that, well, if you do a trade agreement with Mercosur, we are creating an institutional framework around uh, a bilateral trade relations in which raw materials are going to be very, very important. Um, we may need to come up with other strategies for other type of goods, but I, I mean, I think very few of them are going to be changed in any fundamental way by sort of a command economy, heavy hand style approach from Brussels or from national governments. I think it's much more about utilizing the power of the market, getting companies to make investments, getting them to adjust, uh, diversify supply chains, and, and I think that's going to sort of address a pretty significant part of the problem. Then there are a few more difficult things, for instance, on raw materials. Um, so if you, want to, if you want to mine raw materials in Europe, well, good luck. Uh, perhaps we should revisit some of the policies that we can sort of make that, that, that easier. I know, for instance, that Sweden now is making a big show and dance about uh, a couple of mines up north where um, could be, if not gold, so at least something, something very, very, very... Uh, shiny and important that are waiting for us to be dug out. But of course, given how regulations are created, um, my sort of grandchildren may be uh, able to 
prosper from that because it takes 20, 25, 30 years sometimes in order to get these things done. And of course, that's, that's not a policy which is going to work in an environment where we need to accelerate uh, the policies that are going to make us sort of less exposed to type of risks that we don't want to have. Well, let's hope your grandchildren aren't discussing the promise of green or clean mining and uh, <laughs> <laughs> that maybe something has been delivered from, a, from an innovation point of view. Um, I think, Charlotte, that um, we're talking a little bit about regulations and we're also talking about the unpredictability of things that are happening in the world, be that something like the, the Russian aggression in Ukraine, be it something like uh, actually material shortages. Um, and so policymakers, governments, authorities are trying to react to these. How do you strike a balance between having rapid knee-jerk reactions to immediate situations or crises, as they may be, and the need that companies feel to have consistent and clear regulation? Because I'm sure that you, you feel is something that is necessary. Yes, I think that if, if we should point out a few of the, 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 the things that our members are discussing every day around their coffee tables or in the the boardroom or, or wherever it is, um, it, I would say it's the, the regulatory framework that we have in, in Europe for the moment, where we see um, during this, this commission we have seen an avalanche of different regulations coming out. And it's of course not that we are against regulations, we need it. We, we, we need reg regulations that are fit for purpose and that you can also have a long-term um, prediction. But as Fredrik said, it cannot take 25 years for having a, a permit to do something. So there must be a, a way there that we have regulations fit for purpose, and they should also be revisited. I think that that is another problem that we see, especially in the, in the tech area, um, that we have regulations dated from, well, our grandparents maybe, um, that should be applied today. So the message from our companies and from us is that we need also to have a regulatory, uh, a, a competitiveness check on our, um, our regulations. I know that the, um, the pre President von der Leyen, she has uh, mentioned this, but we need to see it quite, quite uh, quickly to be oper operational. Uh, and that we haven't seen yet. And it should not just be on future regulation. We also need to have something on the regulations already passed and being have been decided upon but not put in place. This is a big, big worry amongst our uh, companies that they don't know uh, the regulatory fr framework, what that would mean. We also have many regulations at the moment that will come across each other. And I don't think that anyone really has the overview of how this will work in, in, in practice. This we need to fix now, uh, because this is about speed. What we really need in, in Europe, uh, because we have a lot, well, now we're talking about that there is uh, so many problems. Mm -hmm. I think that Europe is a great place. We do have a lot of smart people. We have a lot of potential. We have fantastic companies in Europe, but really both old industrial companies and new startups, but they cannot be hampered due to over-regulations or complicated regulations. We really need to find a better way of doing regulation in, in this, in this uh, sense. 
We talk about also in our business community here in Brussels of a regulatory breathing space. I, I don't even think that we should talk about a breathing space. We needed to see it longer term, that the way that we are doing this is also based on a, a, a way of doing pragmatic way. This is the word that I'm looking for. Exactly how this should be done, um, Again, it's it's difficult to say pinpoint. It's not as, there is no silver bullet, but we really, really need to do this now, not in the next commission or somewhere else. It's really now. Our otherwise, I'm afraid that companies that could move from Europe move mm. because where it's easier to make business and easier to develop these technologies, easier to do what what we have just been discussing here. To get the regulatory framework right to to f for all kind of of companies that's uh, essential, apart from skills. <laughs> we'll come back to skills if we have time. <laughs> I think we're pretty united on that. We won't get much debate around the need for better skills. Andrew, let me turn to you. Um, and, and I'm, going, I'm pulling on one of uh, Jorgen, who can't be with us. One of his speaking points was that global powers need to align on critical issues, for example, on data localization and AI. I would add in data protection issues there as well. And I see even that's chiming with some of the questions we're getting in from the audience. I've started to see them filtering through. Um, Dorothy Ahrens is saying that uh, developments are indicating that like-minded partners seem to be becoming harder to find. Um, and at the same time, accessing critical resources and processing capabilities are concentrated in the hands of a few. Um, I think, Andrew, the question I want, or the, the point I'm trying to get you to expand on is how do we need to sort of frame this in a global situation? We know we can make all the rules we want with inside Europe, but if we want to trade globally, we need others to have the same buy-in. And are we finding enough friends out there? I think it's a really good question because, you know, to a certain extent, we've been through a period of convergence, especially after the end of the Cold War, in which multilateral global cooperation prospered. And we saw increasingly free trade and, and you know, barriers coming down around the world. And I think that was to the benefit of, of many consumers or citizens or nations. Um, but as... Uh, as the minister said earlier, we are in a slightly different era now, and it's an era of geopolitical divergence. Um, now, that doesn't take away from the benefits of global cooperation. They remain. Um, but it does mean that, for instance, in my industry, there's every interest for the world being globally connected. But we also understand that various countries want trusted vendors or they want secure supply chains, or they want to know that the components which are being used are actually being used for benign reasons and not malign reasons. And there, I do think there is scope for, uh, if you like, like-minded, and that ranges from Asia, you know, through Central Europe, uh, Africa, the Middle East, uh, across to the Americas, to ensure that we advance the right norms and standards and that where you need supply chain resilience or where you need to ensure that the people providing that critical infrastructure, whether that's in healthcare or transport or energy, are actually trusted. And so I think we, we need to adapt to this slightly different framing from, from, from the one in which the world was converging to, to one in which the world to a certain extent is, is diverging. 
see a couple of questions um, similarly focused on uh, on combining the questions of driving for a green transition and sustainability, and then the negative impact on the environment that, for example, uh, Leonard Petz is saying, uh, the need for critical raw materials in the mining. How do we how do we balance that? How do we how do we come up with the the perfect solution? Well. I think it's a mix of uh, of different uh, kind of strategies, but um, I mean something that we need to 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 be aware of indeed, you know, I mean, is that uh, there is kind of this shift in dependencies, you know, I mean, towards some dependencies which are of course on on these critical raw materials which are essential for the for the green and digital transition, and um, and there is a need for us. To think, you know, I mean, like uh, I think we have kind of three-way structure. The first one is, let's try to better understand, you know, I mean, where are these dependencies, strategic dependencies, lying with, with respect to some of these critical raw materials, but also some other intermediate and final products. Because until now we were not particularly good at that, and now I think that the type of analysis, such as the one I was mentioning before on the 204 goods that already gives you a hint, which is kind of data-driven, uh, scientific-based, uh, and pretty neutral, you know what I mean? And then you can, of course, you know I mean, discuss the results of what comes out of this with the people who are the actors in the different industrial sectors and who know really well, you know, can test blind spots and can say, okay, these are the things that we need to keep an eye on. Because if you don't do that, then there is a kind of, how um, would I say, there is this, uh, somebody I know was always saying there's a distinction between kind of uh, politics and, uh, and uh, economics, and politics works, norm works normally best when it is kind of economic evidence driven to a large extent. And I think that part there is something that we are building up right now. We're having also very much of regular conversations, for example, with uh, US partners or with Canada because these countries are actually facing exactly the same issues we are facing. We might be approaching things in a different way. So I was having a conversation the other day with the chief economist of the Department of the State of the US, who was telling us, okay, you're you guys, you know, I mean, are looking at these dependencies in a way that you're looking one mile deep, you know, I mean, and, uh, you know, kind of one inch uh, broad. And we might be looking at this, you know, I mean, one mile broad and one inch deep, but actually we're looking at the same kind of thing, you know, I mean, and I think that that's, that's a pretty interesting uh, area where we need to push forward, which is having the right evidence in order to be able to interpret what is out there. And the second one, I think, is indeed, you know, I mean, uh, establishing these kind of um, partnerships with like-minded partners uh, or like-minded countries that can help us, you know, I mean, to move forward because many of the international partners of the EU are indeed facing very similar issues, you know, I mean, so there is a common interest, there are common dependencies that we have, for example, with Canada, you know, with respect to China or with respect to Russia, that we can address, you know, I mean, if we actually sit down and talk about it, you know, I mean, in the, in the right fora. So there, is the, there are many different of, uh, international fora uh, or international platforms which are looking at these issues in depth, such as the TTC with US. And I think that developments in, the, in that front could be particularly <coughs> important. And then my third kind of point on this is that there is a number a very rich number of instruments at EU level and also at member state level. And we need to be uh, able to align those instruments to deliver on these 
short-term aspects, but also on the long-term competitiveness agenda. And this is not only about investments, it's much broader. It's about the regulatory framework, like uh, Charlotte was saying, it's about R&D and innovation, about skills, and about uh, like kind of having a whole of government approach, and I mean, in support, uh, in support of this. So, I mean, we have at the EU level many different instruments, whether it's the recovery and resilience plans, you know, which are a great way, you know, I mean, of approaching as well, you know, I mean, the, this, this type of, um, you know, moves uh, towards, for example, you know, I mean, more um, possibilities for green mining, but then we encounter ourselves as well, you know, I mean, with a number of problems, the ones that Frederick was mentioning, permitting being one of them. But we have also a number of, uh, let's say, opportunities out there. And I end up with this, but I was reading the other day a very nice report that my colleagues in DG Research and Innovation make every two years, where it was said, for example, that 25% uh, of the world uh, quota of highly cited publications and patents in the areas of climate change and the areas of biotechnology are actually in the EU. So this means there is a huge potential there. However, we're not seeing that potential literally translated into clean tech innovations as such. And I think that uh, the Net Zero Industry Act, the Critical Raw Materials Act, can be very good platforms to allow, you know what I mean, for the scaling up of this type of technologies. Frederick, uh, you said that, um, you know, we need a proper trade policy. There needs to be a, a strong trade policy. Um, with the world the way it is, um, I mean, should trade be used as a tool of foreign policy as well? I mean, there must be a, a temptation to do that. What are your thoughts on that? Trade policy has always been uh, intimately linked to strategic policy, whether that's going to be foreign policy or if it's going to be sort of directly alliance policies. Um, I, I, I used to say sort of uh, traditional trade policy is the perfect marriage between Adam Smith and Niccolo Machiavelli. Um, <laughs> And sort of the idea that free trade policy has been sort of this as abstract concept which has been sort of living its own life without any linkages mm. to sort of the broader context of policy is just, uh, just ridiculous. Um, and so I, I don't think sort of in abstract or in, in principle that there is much of a change here. And sort of building on also some of, the, of Andrew's points that he make, I mean, I mean, the way I would look at it is that, yes, there are adverse developments in the world, um, but there are also a lot of positive developments. It's not that we're living sort of in a, in a global monoculture where sort of everything is just going to hell. Uh, there are lots of positive things that are happening as well. There are a lot of new integration which is happening across the world. If you look at cross-border knowledge flows, if you look at the globalization of ideas, of digital services, of international management, there's an explosion in new forms of integration between individuals, between companies. If you step into a company today and you compare its connectivity to colleagues in the rest of the world, it's radically different from what it was just 10 years ago. So this is something which happens in parallel to the fact that we have uh, problems with great power rivalries, um, uh, that we have sort of protectionist developments that aren't going in the right direction. It's just that we need to find a way to manage them. I think the problem is that the institutions we had and that we built for a long time in order to manage these things globally, they are not working that well anymore. 
and and it's it's equally a great challenge we have in 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 terms of trying to find that alignment between sort of the the growth and the problems we have and how institutions can reflect them and respond to them. Well, let me ask you a, a somewhat of a, a related follow-up question from Jakob Malhoki, uh, who's pointed out that in the US, one of the main drivers of technological innovation and by consequence competitiveness has been the military sector. Um, so we're taking this sort of, uh, if you like, uh, sort of foreign policy or defense policy um, aspect. And what role should that play in Europe's competitiveness? Well, I mean, sort of. I mean, there is one part of that proposition which is correct. Um, then there is another part part of the proposition which is just overhyped. Sort of the notion that Pentagon is going to be this sort of extraordinary private equity uh, actor who is who is uh, capable of finding all these fantastic uh, dynamic companies and take them up to scale and and make things of them. It's not really that case. I mean, it's true that. Uh, not just American defense spending, but European defense spending and defense spending elsewhere, of course, uh, generates knowledge and it generates uh, technologies that, that, of course, is going to be useful in other parts as well. But when you look at innovation, innovation isn't invention. Innovation is that you, you take something and you make a marketable product that people actually want to have. And innovation is sort of when you use technology to force change in society. You get people to stop doing something they're doing right now in order to do something better. That's not something that uh, neither the American military, whatever, sort of however powerful they think they are, they're not capable of doing it. They need to have the capacity of, of not just the American economy, but sort of the world economy in order to bring about that change. So. You know, if you take Microsoft or Apple or any of these companies, of course they have sort of benefited from uh, R&D spending by not just the US military, but by the American government more broadly. But the successes they've had is, uh, is far more, comes far more down to their capabilities to take resources, to build up basic technological skills, and then you make marketable products of them that are actually going to work. But Charlotte, I am going to come to you now on the skills gap, um, because <laughs> how, we, we're talking about this sort of innovation. How do we teach it? Where are the skills lacking? Where, and where can we move the lever? And you know, we, we're supposed to be talking about what the, the Swedish presidency can do. Obviously, a lot of education, it's national competency. So what, what, what do you see as potential solutions, or at least some ideas towards identifying the challenges in an order that we need to tackle them? That's a very good question. We, we had actually just the other day a discussion about um, research and innovation and how we can boost that. And, and then the question about skills come up. Now, we have mentioned skills here previously, and we talk about upskilling and reskilling. But if we don't have the basis, so we need to start already at the age of, of kids, uh, that we have the right schools and that, that it goes up until university. And we also need, it's not just a labor uh, question for, for f that it is also, but it is much more holistic. And I think that we have to uh, acknowledge that the skill is a national competence. It's not uh, um, the magic that the commission can do something like the, the stick. Here, everyone has to see the sense of urgency, and we have it's at all levels. And we have to see um, that uh, th we need to do something at, at all different levels. From the early school, we need more kids to go into the STEM, of course. We need universities to be top notch. Now, when we don't have UK anymore in the EU, we don't have what the top 
universities within the union at the global level. This we need to do something. We need to also, that's, we were talking about um, institutions, to reform institutions. Uh, universities need also to, to have a, a reform on that. I don't think that we have a one fight size fits all. I do not want to see that there is um, a European uh, law or something, regulation of how we would do this. We need to have more collaboration between the European countries. We need to work on the single market for exchange, for that the, the knowledge will be able to flow, and also exchange um, uh, best practices on how you can actually do this. We need to, to take this really, really seriously. I can have just a small example what we have done in Sweden for the rescaling and upscaling. Last summer, we came to an agreement between um, 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 the Confederation of, of Swedish Enterprises, an employer organization, and uh, the unions that people in, in working, so it's not someone who just started, but they have had mm -hmm. to work a couple of years in, in the business, they can take one year off with 80% of their salary to upskill uh, or even reskill themselves. Um, and this is an agreement that we have done from both sides. It wasn't easy to come up with this agreement because, of course, it's costly for, for the employer. Uh, and the, um, the employee will have to leave his or her work for some time. The government is actually chipping in here. But this is not a governmental initiative. The government is not coming in say, now you do this. Mm. We did it between us. I know that this cannot work in, in all countries, but it's one example that I hope can inspire others. And I think that we need more of these kind of examples. But this is, again, about speed. Uh, I think that speed is really something um, that we need to, to, to do. Uh, we cannot wait. I've been here in Brussels for 20 years. Since I came, we talked about the upskilling, reskilling. We need to do something on the skills. Um, we haven't seen very much progress on that. Uh, I think that in, in some areas, we've even seen that, that things are going back. So if we didn't have uh, a crisis for other reasons on energy, etc., now, everyone would be talking about the skills uh, gap as, a, as a huge crisis. So just be prepared. I, I think that we really, really need to t take this serious now and look at it from all kind of, of aspects, not just, and I'm not putting it as a just to, to de neglect the problem, the reskilling and upskilling. We need to have skills at all levels that needs to have a boost. I mean, the European Commission has designated 2023 as the year of skills, so you've only had to wait 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me turn, Andrew, uh, back to you. Um, we've talked a lot about sort of key technologies and, and what sort of things are needed uh, to help the competitiveness. Um, I'd like to get your take on some specific technologies that you think are important for the future. I mean, if you look into your crystal ball, where do we focus? Is it, is it absolutely essential? Is it getting the AI Act right? And how do we do that? Where, where do you see the, the priorities there? Yeah, and it's, it's in a strange way, it's connected to skills. It's, it's partly about digital skills, but it's also about the implication of technology with, if you like, robotics and artificial intelligence. How do we get you know, the next generation of jobs um, which will be higher value jobs in a sense, because some of the current jobs will will indeed be in, in the digital economy and they'll be done 
you know, by by robots, as we've seen in the car industry, or as we're beginning to see with with the uh, massive language uh, AI, um, it, it's it's even starting to do kids' homework. So, how do we how do we train our um, children to not just um, to be able to use uh, digital tools, not just to be able to develop the software for the new applications, but also to move into that higher value range of um, economic activity. I think that's a, a huge challenge. And it's one, again, going back to what I said earlier, it's one where those that have the platforms, um, that's where the jobs will flow. And so that's why it's so critical that, that you have the connectivity. Uh, my CEO likes to say everything that can go wireless will go wireless. And I think you know China, India, the US have recognized that. Um, and with that connectivity, so comes uh, the other technology, whether that's quantum or AI or robotics or cloud gaming, as you're seeing now, but cloud gaming easily turns to cloud-based medicine, uh, transport, and you think about the energy efficiency you get from that. So I think there's enormous opportunity in using these new technologies, but you need to be connected in order to get there. for each of you, which is to attempt to give me a closing summation in one minute, <laughs> no more, uh, because I see we are running short of time. Roman, I'll let you go first, which is not always easy. Well, I think that uh, one of the things that we have to take into account here, and I'll go back to where I was starting in the beginning, is that uh, we live in a different world. And in this different world of this age of uh, uh, disorder or, or um, you know, as the economist called it the other day, the Mona Lisa effect that you look at the at things um, in different ways and they give you different responses. Uh, that is that is going to make as well has to has to have an impact on the way that we that we make policies to adjust to this uh, changing world. And I think when we do that, we need to be able to focus both on the shorter term issues which are very pressing and uh, which are out there. And uh, I refer back to the, uh, to the dependencies, uh, shortages, and other types of disruptions that we are uh, having in the shorter term. But then we also need to have a proper agenda for the longer term to be able to uh, kind of ride on our um, great opportunities in Europe for competitiveness in many areas. And that requires a combination of uh, different actions which will take us there, and that's not only investment, it's investment, but it's also regulation, it's um, kind of the reforms and reskilling type of work, and it's relations with international third-partner countries that are like-minded. I'm going to be unpredictable. Andrew, I'm going to ask for your quick one-minute summation next. I think we need to, we need to reconsider this notion of... Um, competitivity, it's often linked to the single market and to competition in a sense within Europe and to optimizing for European consumers, which we would all support. Um, but I, I think the challenge is how do you support globally competitive Europe with globally competitive European companies? And I think the answer you find elsewhere in the world is, is by supporting uh, investment, research and development, innovation, um, by taking away some of the regulatory barriers and for allowing enough scale uh, to be able to compete globally. And it, if you get those ingredients right, then, then you can have globally competitive companies. But if you don't, 
then you, your market ends up being almost not entirely, but um, focused on Europe. Charlotte, a final thought from you. Yes, I have two two things that I would like to see, and two messages actually, that competitiveness is not. Uh, gone from the agenda on the 1st of July this, this year. Uh, we live in a time where you have things going in cycles and if we should are really serious here, mm -hmm. we need to continue. So to the Spanish and Belgium and Hungarian and Polish and uh, so on, don't let competitiveness go away from the agenda. That's the first thing. Then the next thing is, I think that the, the, um, the competitiveness strategy that was launched in March from, from the Commission is, is good, but don't let it go away because there will be a new Commission next year. Mm. Frederick, final word, which, isn't, which is almost as challenging as going first. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. I'm the one standing between you and the drinks table, aren't there? Yes, <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, my, my point is very simple, which is the important thing is to keep the focus on the long term. There are very few things that we can do and fix in the short term. It's the long term development that, that is going to matter. We need to update our policy frameworks to a new, a new age. I mean, we're talking about um, a target of spending 3% of GDP on research and development. We're not reaching it. I, I think there is a gap around 100 billion euros in, Euro, in, Euro, in the EU in order to reach it. Uh, but that target was set 45 years ago for an economy which wasn't as dependent on new technology, innovation, human capital as our current economy. Perhaps you should spend 5% of GDP on R&D in order to generate the underlying oomph that we want to have in the economy. So update the frameworks and think long term. That's what's going to drive Europe to competitiveness and maintaining competitiveness in the future. Well, thank you very much indeed, and thank you all for your questions. I'm sorry we didn't get to all of them, but the time was tight. Uh, that was our debate for tonight, but remember you can find out more about the Euractive series of presidency debates by following the hashtag EADebates. And thanks as always to Microsoft for their support, and a big round of applause, so thank you very much to all our panellists.